A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage. That lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the second episode of The Korean War, The Force of Peace. Last time we introduced you guys to the aftermath of the Second World War and to the series of acts brought in by the Truman administration in response to the worrying international situation. The Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan and the creation of NATO all provided in quick succession a challenge to the communist Soviet and Chinese regimes. As we saw though, this level of activity by no means guaranteed that the United States intended to become embroiled in a new conflict far away on the Korean Peninsula. 
In this episode, we look at what in many ways was the forgotten element of the Korean War, the role of the United Nations. This episode contains some important background information on how the UN worked, who was part of it, and how it came to play a role in the Korean War to come. We will, of course, be seeing the United Nations quite a lot in this series, so this episode really should set us up well for what's to come. In addition, since the commander of the United Nations forces would be Douglas MacArthur from the moment the Allied contribution to the peninsula was made, it would only be right to spend some time examining the character and career of that figure, since MacArthur would go on to play a pivotal role in the development of the Korean War, and would at the same time raise the ire, not merely of the Truman administration, but of America's allies throughout the duration of that conflict. It's a story which is as multi-layered as it is fascinating, so I hope I'll have your patience and willing attention as we dive right into it. A huge thanks to everyone who has gotten in touch so far, and tell me that they're enjoying the show, and please continue to join the debate and the discussion, above all in the newly created Facebook group, which I think you guys will really enjoy. There's some great people there, and some great discussions already happening, so please look at the description, the show notes of this episode, and you can join from there. Just click on the link, and the rest is history. Now then, it is my pleasure to take you guys to 1945, where a strange and exciting new institution is about to be brought to life. The song of the week this week, well, the one of many songs of this week, is brought to you by Studio. Studio. What is Studio, Zach? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Studio are a Swedish company responsible for some of the most stylish, quality earphones and headphones available to man and woman today. You can choose between earbuds or over-ear headphones, and you can embrace the convenience of Bluetooth wireless listening, or be like me and keep them plugged in by wire to your device, computer, or what have you when you're out and about or working at home. Studio are the earphones podcasting professionals, like myself, make use of to get you guys the best possible sounding product. And Studio have teamed up with myself and the good folks at the Agora Podcast Network to bring you guys a special deal. If you go to studio.com and enter in the code WDF, you can get 15% off your order, and you'll even send a smidgen of money my way while you're at it. So why wait? If you're looking to get new headphones or earphones, or if those cheap ones your poor granny got you for Christmas have already broken, head on over to studio.com and start your listening journey with style today. This week's song is Ada Jones and Billy Watkins by The Beautiful Sea, released in 1914 and available for free on the Free Music Archive, so check our show notes for the direct link. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode two of The Korean War. Get together. Don't you love that nice summer weather? So let's go to that beautiful sea. I'll follow along if you for me. Anything that I would suggest to you. Yes, your heart, I think it's the best to do. So jump in my Ford. Holler all aboard. He, I want to be. By the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh how happy we'll be. When each wave comes a rolling in, we will duck or swim, and we'll float and fool around the water. Oh 
wonder. Or is rich. My is rich. So now what do we care? I love to be beside your side. Beside the sea. Beside the seaside. By the beautiful sea. The Charter of the United Nations was signed on the 26th of June 1945 in San Francisco, California, following a United Nations conference on international organization. This supranational organization, which is now the most powerful and recognizable such institution of its kind on the planet, officially became part of international law on the 26th of November 1945. The preamble of its charter reads that we, the people of the United Nations, are determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetimes has brought untold sorrow to mankind, to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations large and small, to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. At its founding in October 1945, the United Nations had 51 member states, a hodgepodge of states, former colonies, world powers, dominions and more, all of whom believed in the concepts of international peace, at that time collective security, and of course mutual betterment. To this day, the UN retains its 1945 structure despite the influx of new members. An assembly contains representatives from all of the 193 member states, all of whom get one vote to decide on policy. Yet it is the Security Council which remains the most important part of the UN, and the origins of this body link it to the immediate post-war years, where the US, the USSR, Britain, the Republic of China, and France moved to cooperate on a post-war arrangement based loosely on the ideas and principles of the ill-fated League of Nations. The concept of collective security and international cooperation had evidently not died with the League's sad failure, and the four critical allies, who were joined by France after a short time, formed the nucleus of the modern-day Security Council. When it was founded, 10 seats were part of this council, but now it has 15 seats, five of which are permanently occupied by the US, the People's Republic of China now, Russia, Britain and France, while the remaining 10 are occupied on a rotating basis. The Security Council has changed a great deal over the years, as the Cold War era, international disasters, armed coups and humanitarian crises all challenged the military arm of the organisation to act. For us... One particular relevant difference between the Security Council of 1945 and the Security Council of today is found in its permanent members. In 1971, despite American opposition, the Republic of China, or Taiwan, lost its seat to the People's Republic of China. In short, this involved the replacement of Taiwan with China, and this is important for our story because it helps to explain why, in summer 1950, the United Nations Security Council approved military intervention despite the appearance of China on that council. The absence of Mao Zedong's regime on the United Nations Security Council 
was so resented by the Soviet Union at the time that the Soviet delegate was in fact boycotting the Security Council in protest between January and August 1950, which further helps to explain how that institution managed to gain approval for intervention, but as we'll see, the Soviet boycott had more to it than that. In 1950, China meant the Republic of China, which had at that point lost the civil war to the communists the year before, and found itself exiled as a government to the island of Taiwan. This element of the story is critical to understand if we're to get a greater sense of the world in which the Korean War was fought in the early 1950s, and in time we'll be going into the Asian situation in more detail, but for now it is worthwhile spending some time examining the UN between the years 1945-50. to 50. By the terms of the Charter, the 51 member states of the UN agreed first of all to seek the settlement of their disputes by peaceful means. The Security Council and the General Assembly were empowered to take appropriate steps with a view to facilitating agreement between the parties or the states directly concerned in a threatening dispute or situation. Members of the United Nations also agreed not to use force or the threat of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations, as it was put. If there should be a threat to the peace, a breach of the peace, or an act of aggression, then the Security Council was empowered to take appropriate actions to maintain or restore international peace and security, including through the use of economic and diplomatic measures and armed force. In short, the UN was designed to keep the peace both within and without of its members' concerns. Decisions of the Council to apply these measures were to be binding upon members. When we come to the nitty-gritty part of that issue, though, in the case of the Security Council's decision to use military force, the Charter required that special agreements must be concluded between the Security Council and members, specifying the national forces to be placed at the disposal of the Council, what their degree of readiness would be, and the state of other facilities made available. In other words, the UN could patrol the world and seek to implement the principles of peace, betterment, and collective security, but once a crisis flared up, it was down to the HQ of the United Nations in New York, Geneva, or Vienna to hammer out the details of what each state was required to do. During that process, intensive negotiations followed, the interests of the different member states had to be considered, and the powerful veto exercised by the five permanent Security Council members also had to be navigated. In 1950, over 50 member states would be entitled to voice their opinions through their representatives, and this suggested a real potential for any real crisis to draw divisions out into the open and create a diplomatic quagmire rather than bring immediate collective security to anyone. If such difficulties were to be overcome and cooperation maintained, then some seriously effective diplomacy would have to be implemented and compromises would have to be made. In the late 1940s, neither the United Nations nor NATO nor the Marshall Plan had planned for a war to erupt in Korea. Yet, contrary to the common interpretation of that conflict, it was officially a United Nations force made up of multinational contingents, but led unmistakably by the Americans, which made the journey to the peninsula and carried the war to the communists. While this fit in with the developing US foreign policy idea of containment at the time, and of cooperation with Western Europe in particular, containment did not lead America to march triumphantly to Korea by itself. Instead, virtually to a man, 
Truman's administration decided to appeal through the United Nations and through its auspices to commit itself to the war against North Korea. We'll examine these strange truths in a later episode, but it is important to remember what the UN was and, conversely, what it wasn't. It was meant to protect small nations and stabilise this new world order in the aftermath of such a devastating conflict. The preamble of the United Nations demonstrated that the scars left by those two horrific world wars remained fresh on each member state's mind. World War, for a third time, was the eventuality to be studiously and collectively avoided, and this is how the concept of unanimity in the Security Council's voting process was explained. All the high-minded and lofty ideas of the UN wouldn't have been much use if one of the five permanent members of the Security Council were able to declare war on one another. The veto prevented that from happening in its most basic form, and thus it prevented the UN from rupturing at the highest level. There was another reason for unanimity as well, as the historian Leland Goodrich explains when he wrote, The requirement of unanimity was expected to provide positive assurance that agreement would be reached in view of the overpowering interests which the great powers were thought to have in the maintenance of international peace and security. However, it seemed that when constructing the Security Council's decision-making processes, it wasn't fully anticipated that its members would soon fall out. In the first meeting of the Security Council members, in January 1946, held in London, there was little indication of the intense international competition or ideological face-off which was to come. One historian noted that much of this had to do with President Truman's style. He was described as reticent since... Until he had made his mind up, the president largely chose to remain silent about troubling developments in US-Soviet relations, thereby making it unclear as to where exactly he stood, as one historian put it. There was also an element of backwards history in the notion that the Cold War was always destined to materialise. We are of course familiar with Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, and we even heard a bit of it in the Cold War Crash Course, but this was performed in front of American audiences only in March 1946, and while hindsight dictates that it served to set the ball rolling, it should be remembered just how much work had already been done on the propaganda front to make Joseph Stalin not appear as the international villain or danger to the free peoples of the world, but to make him and Soviet Russia appear as the brave ally and friend to the West, as Uncle Joe. We take it for granted now that the post-war settlement automatically led to the Cold War, but perceptions and perspectives on the bravery of Russia's soldiery, on the grave and terrible price our people paid in the war, and on the regular imagery of the big three allies cooperating together at the Allied conferences, that these all left an imprint behind. It wasn't so easy to abruptly move on from such a system, But if Churchill's speech did get the ball rolling, immediately reciprocated in the East by unflattering caricatures of the former Prime Minister, by the way, then the Truman Doctrine speech of March the following year helped to crystallise it. By that point, it was apparent that a new age of international competition was dawning, and that the former ally had become the greatest threat to the interests of democratic expansion. Further disagreements over the fate of Germany, as we saw, and the evacuation of the Soviets from the Allied Foreign Minister Conferences, by late 1947, all served to further underline this point. By that point, of course, it was too late to simply evict the Soviet Union from the UN Security Council, and the problems that this posed to the collective security of the weakened post-war economies and militaries of the West 
played a significant role in the creation of NATO two years later. Once the ball got rolling, it was very hard to make it stop. We saw in the last episode that a certain amount of incoherence in US foreign policy reigned in the years before the Korean War. Historian Robert Jervis remarked that, In some cases, the Korean War gave decision-makers the freedom to do what they had wanted but previously been unable to do. In others, it changed their minds or pushed them in directions they had not thought of before. In all cases, it took the Korean War to bring about the policies that we associate with the Cold War. So it would be fair to say that the Korean War completed the image of the Cold War, which we now see as familiar, that of the US and USSR facing down one another in the different theatres of the world, as one power sought to promote the spread of Stalinist communism tied to Moscow, and the other sought to block such expansion and knit together a coalition of states dedicated to similar purposes. If the Korean War was the nail in the coffin of unilateral post-war cooperation, then the initial establishment of the United Nations and its Security Council's designs represents the final burst of positivity which indicated that such cooperation might be possible. However, even if the notion of the Security Council acting in the name of the collective interest was a young one, it was not wholly ineffective. For example, the pressure exerted by this arm of the United Nations helped bring about peaceful settlement in both Indonesia and Palestine because the interests of the five members of the Security Council, critically, were not in conflict. In other regions where such interests were not aligned, such as the Greek Civil War for example, the heavy US military and financial aid to the Greek monarchists, not to mention the subsequent defection of communist Yugoslavia from the Soviet camp and into a kind of neutral third way, all added to the idea that the Security Council could produce results. While the Soviets proved difficult to persuade on the Security Council with respect to the Greek issue, it certainly helped that US personnel were already on the ground and could compel results. In the case of countries like Iran, though, Soviet forces were removed from the border regions as a gesture of Soviet goodwill once it was intimated by the Soviet representative on the Security Council that the Iranian question was a contentious one. In short, this brief rundown of events serves to demonstrate that the Security Council could be an effective debating tool and was a useful way to bring representatives of each of the concerned major powers together in rapid, quick time. While it had demonstrated potential before the Korean War then, the Security Council had yet to properly invest itself in a situation where definite disagreement reigned and where gestures of goodwill would not be enough to fix a deadlock. So the Security Council was a great tool in times of cooperation and calm, but it had yet to really be tested in the kind of baptism of fire that the post-war world could present. In line with this idea that the United Nations was the product and the victim of these trends, one historian wrote that in the case of the Korean War, unfortunately, the assumption of the great power cooperation did not materialise in practice. This cooperation, anticipated in the joint operations of the occasionally harmonious UN Security Council, failed to materialise as a result of the development of basic and unbridgeable differences between the Western powers and the Soviet Union, as that historian put it. Skeptics would have suspected as much, and would have theorised that as soon as a divisive issue presented itself, problems were bound to arise. However, in autumn 1945, the post-war powers were not necessarily thinking about the next phase of worldwide hostilities. They were thinking of rebuilding, 
and a cooperative council of major powers seemed like the best way to guarantee this future. Yet, whether this was a case of positivity or naivety, the problem of the unanimous veto soon became apparent, as somewhat predictably, the Security Council became powerless to take action of any kind in any case where the Great Powers found themselves in conflict and anyone registered its dissent. With the Security Council effectively paralysed by the Soviet veto, the United Nations risked degenerating into the inactive League of Nations in the event that a conflict emerged in a contentious theatre. Since the General Assembly of the United Nations and the 51 member states therein would not act without the Security Council's OK, the potential for everything stalling thanks to the Soviets became a real possibility. This again can help explain the creation of NATO in spring 1949. Yet the creation of NATO, the year before the Korean War erupted, provides us with another puzzle to solve. Having just seen the damage to collective cooperation that a single veto in the UN Security Council could do, we're presented with the curious image of the United States operating through the United Nations and using those same institutions to acquire the legitimacy to act in Korea that it needed, rather than appealing through the friendlier NATO powers. This fact said as much about the limitations of NATO as it did about the hopes that the Truman administration held for the United Nations. Whether it had the potential to become a house divided or not, the legitimacy provided by the UN's intervention in the Korean War proved just as important for US policy making as it did for increasing the profile and prestige of the United Nations. Having played no small role in crafting the ambitious post-war supranational organisation, Washington seemed content, almost to a man by summer 1950, to put that organisation to the test. And to the test it would be put, because the United Nations, as we'll see, had a fundamental, critical role in shaping the post-war Korean arrangement, and in setting up different individual institutions to help bring about Korean unification. Because it was so involved in Korea then, it seemed only logical to ask for permission, or at least apply through the United Nations, before one intervened in Korea. Since the United Nations had been there before, and since their officials were still there on the ground, what other supranational organisation could have had more authority to act there? As we saw from January 1950, the Soviet seat on the Security Council, and thus the Soviet veto, was notably absent owing to a dispute over the presence of the Republic of China's representative. In the Soviet view, the victorious communist regime of Mao Zedong's New China should have the seat, not the exiled and defeated regime of Chiang Kai-shek. The opportunity to present their case to the whole of the United Nations without the great risk of Soviet stonewalling was too great for the Truman administration to pass up, and one wonders what way Washington might have approached the Korean issue had the Soviets actually been present to give their veto. Incidentally, the Soviet Union had ulterior motives for remaining absent from the United Nations Security Council, and Stalin had his own reasons for allowing their subsequent unanimous condemnation of the North Korean aggression to pass through that institution's auspices. Such facts are part and parcel of the new interpretation of the Korean War, which I want to present to you guys. But for the remainder of the episode, I want to delve into one of the most important, but perhaps overlooked figures of the era, General Douglas MacArthur.
Scientists, British and American, have made the atomic bomb at last. The first one was dropped on a Japanese city this morning. It was designed for a detonation equal to 20,000 tons of high explosives. On the subject of that same bomb, President Truman had this to say. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. If the atomic bomb had ushered in a new era of American-Japanese relations, then this new era would have to be guarded through a careful and sensitive method of governance if it was to last Thus, when Foreign Service Officer John K. Emerson arrived with a large staff of American military and diplomatic personnel in the first week of October 1945, he was greeted with an interesting sight as he entered Tokyo's now-defunct foreign office. Emerson recalled, I walked into our new offices just as a Mitsui junior executive was clearing the last items from his desk. Before turning to go out the door, he hesitated, pointing to a map on the wall depicting Japan's co-prosperity sphere in East Asia. There it is, he said smiling. We tried. See what you can do with it. The anecdote was as symbolic as it was ominous. The Asian theatre was to prove the major occupation of US policymakers while adhering to the principles of containment, and it was to cost the United States dearly in terms of lives, monies and materials lost. While the conflicts of Korea and Vietnam were still on the horizon in 1945, what mattered most to Washington in that year was a different kind of containment, that of the Japanese military doctrine which had inflicted the so-called co-prosperity sphere on a vast swathe of Asian peoples and lands. In 1945, the question was how to rebuild Japan, how to inject democratic principles, and how, one day, to release this once bitter enemy back into the concert of states. To facilitate this, an occupation of unprecedented proportions was required, hence Emerson's arrival in Tokyo in October 45. Yet it was Emerson's superior who would be in charge of carrying this task through to fruition above all. His name was General Douglas MacArthur, and he had returned from Triumph in the Pacific Campaign to the homeland of the enemy. The United States had won the war, and now it remained to see if it could win the peace. What MacArthur would do in Japan for the next few years before becoming the commander of Allied forces in Korea would only add to a legend that had been building since the end of the First World War. As a soldier, MacArthur was courageous, dedicated, resourceful and innovative. He read widely and he reflected deeply upon past conflicts and upon the dilemmas confronting commanders. He believed in bettering himself, in not resting upon his past accomplishments and in furthering his knowledge in the process. A fact which made him popular with the men he commanded was that he was noted, during his command in the Southwest Pacific, for identifying a more efficient way of attaining his objectives, which would not entail heavy casualties. MacArthur was an original and indeed a brilliant commander, it has to be said. He emerged from the Second World War at the age of 65 as one of the most outstanding commanders in American history. The appreciation for MacArthur among American audiences was at such a height that it seemed as though he could do no wrong. It also seemed, after such a stellar record of service, 
that it was only reasonable for the veteran soldier to call it a day upon the surrender of Japan. Yet, depending on where you stand, the Korean War represents one of the most famous or infamous instances of a general overreaching himself, of the military arm of the state attempting to override the legal prerogatives of the political. Once placed in command of Allied forces in Korea, MacArthur characterised his tenure in office by a series of catastrophic strategic mistakes and plain underestimations of the enemy's strength. This was bad in itself, but what really got Truman's goat and the ghosts of his allies was MacArthur's consistent habit of going off the diplomatic script. MacArthur was a vocal critic of Chinese intervention on the side of the North, and his repeated calls for retaliation and military acts and sowing a field of nuclear waste in between China and North Korea, which would dramatically raise the tensions and ire of the Soviets and Chinese, eventually cost him his command. All of these are tales to come in our story, and, as you might have expected, the tale that you are usually told is not exactly the angle we're going to go with, but for the remainder of this episode I think it's worth dwelling on what was arguably the final success of MacArthur's career, the rebuilding of Japan. MacArthur had been thoroughly involved in this rebuilding process, and since the initial post-surrender policy for Japan on the 29th of August 1945, he had played a role in fulfilling his vision set out in that agreement. This agreement planned for, first, the physical and spiritual demilitarization of Japan, second, the development of a democratic society and government, and third, the development of a minimum viable economy. Above all, MacArthur was to depend upon the person of the emperor, Hirohito, who had led, or been led, depending on who you ask, the Japanese through the Pacific War, and who still retained an unparalleled control over the spiritual and emotional directions of the Japanese people. In their first meeting in September 1945, MacArthur had his photo taken while standing beside Hirohito. The image was subsequently released to the Japanese public, and it caused a sensation. Perhaps intentionally, MacArthur towered over the shorter Hirohito in the photograph, a sight which the previously sheltered Japanese had never seen before. In years past, their emperor had always been portrayed from a position of strength, but to see him physically dwarfed by the American general sent shockwaves through Japanese society. Initially, the image was banned, it was so controversial, but MacArthur lifted the ban after a few weeks, insisting that the Japanese people see it for the symbolic photo that it was. It was a plain demonstration that the emperor was now under the sway of a taller, stronger and more powerful emperor, General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur's attack on the god emperor's mystique only went so far though. The general recognised from an early stage that his rule of Japan would be made that much easier if the emperor remained a figurehead for his policy since the Japanese will be more likely to do as he said. Although one would imagine that MacArthur's bluntness could have the tendency to rub the Japanese up the wrong way, the partnership seemed to work. MacArthur shielded Hirohito from any notion of being held accountable for his leadership of Japan during the war, and in return Hirohito never publicly acknowledged that MacArthur pulled the strings. After a year in this partnership, MacArthur was able to notice the presence of a spiritual revolution ensued which almost overnight tore asunder a theory and practice of life built upon 2,000 years of history and tradition and legend. Idolatry for their feudalistic masters and the warrior's caste was transformed into hatred and contempt 
and the hatred and contempt once felt for their foe gave way to honour and respect. This revolution of the spirit among the Japanese people represents no thin veneer to serve the purposes of the present. It represents an unparalleled convulsion in the social history of the world. Indeed, MacArthur seemed confident by May 1949 that Japan had been completely turned around and that the Japanese people had embraced democracy and shirked despotism for good. It was convenient for MacArthur that Japan had managed such a miraculous turnaround in less than four years, for the time had come to implement a policy not of reform in Japan, but of recovery. If the economy of Japan could be sufficiently rebuilt, then the Japanese would be able to stand in Asia alongside their American allies against the threat from communist Russia and China. The military defeat of the Chinese nationalists and their retreat to Taiwan by December 1949 completed this picture and changed the end goal of the occupation in Japan in the process. However, more than one historian has alluded to the fact that MacArthur was somewhat distracted by 1947 and was in many senses eager to extricate himself from what he believed would be a short occupation of Japan. The reason for the general's urgency in 1947? Well, Douglas MacArthur, according to some sources, had his eye on the presidency and planned to make a bid for the Republican nomination in time for the 1948 election. Being chosen as the Republicans' candidate for the 1948 election would of course put him in competition for Truman if he was successful, as Truman was seeking another term since first taking office following Roosevelt's death in spring 1945. Supposedly, when Truman playfully confronted these rumours in 1947, saying that MacArthur could have his seat if he so desired it, MacArthur fired back with equal coyness that he wouldn't want to stand in Eisenhower's way, that is, the General Eisenhower who would contest the election in 1952 and become America's 34th president. This exchange also adds further layers to MacArthur's character and gives us a window into what the general planned to do next. Looking at it this way, we see MacArthur as ambitious and determined to make something out of his hard-won fame, but the record also suggests that MacArthur may have been tiring of the limitations of his role in occupied Japan, where frequent requests and inquiries by the Four-Nation Council, established to maintain the occupation in Japan, caused him and his staff immense frustration. MacArthur couldn't countenance any interference on the part of the Russians, and ensured that the Japanese people were regularly informed of the mortal dangers of communism. In the event, MacArthur blamed his commitments to the occupation of Japan as the reason why he couldn't return home, while his supporters in the United States emphasised the famed general's contribution to Asian democracy as proof of his suitability for the role as commander-in-chief. A Republican primary in Wisconsin in March 1948 would have been the litmus test for MacArthur's presidential ambitions, and despite the positive predictions by some observers and media organs, his cause was heavily defeated. MacArthur's will-he-won't-he status with regards to both the nomination and the presidency was said to be to blame for the uninspiring performance, which MacArthur's supporters called a slap in the face to the great general's accomplishments and years of service. Yet it is worth considering the idea that some in the American public feared the prospect of a military man holding too much power and overriding the traditional powers of his office. Imagining, admittedly far-fetched scenarios, some students and former GIs in the weeks before the primary declared the mistrust for a military candidate and their unease at the sight of the military arm of the state 
reaching for the executive office. In the event, Truman clinched his second term and began his new stretch in office with a fiery speech directed explicitly at communism, in which he said, I accept with humility the honor which the American people have conferred upon me. I accept it with a resolve to do all that I can for the welfare of this nation and for the peace of the world. The American people desire and are determined to work for a world in which all nations and all peoples are free to govern themselves as they see fit and to achieve a decent and satisfying life. Above all else, our people desire and are determined to work for peace on earth, a just and lasting peace based on genuine agreement freely arrived at by equals. In the pursuit of these aims, the United States and other like-minded nations find themselves directly opposed by a regime with contrary aims and a totally different concept of life. That regime adheres to a false philosophy which purports to offer freedom security, and greater opportunity to mankind. Misled by that philosophy, many peoples have sacrificed their liberties only to learn to their sorrow that deceit and mockery, poverty and tyranny are their reward. That false philosophy is communism. Our allies are the millions who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Steadfast in our faith in the Almighty, we will advance toward a world where man's freedom is secure. To that end, we will devote our strength, our resources, and our firmness of resolve. With God's help, the future of mankind will be assured in a world of justice, harmony, and peace. Perhaps it was simply too soon for a general to become president, or perhaps MacArthur's ambition was to blame. Either way, MacArthur was able to allude to prior commitments as the reason for bowing out of the race, which he claimed to the end that he never really entered into anyway. The American people in this little-known event on an otherwise uneventful election year had gotten a glimpse of MacArthur the politician, as opposed to MacArthur the general. In a few years, at what his critics and above all President Truman would claim was absolutely the wrong time, MacArthur the General would attempt to become MacArthur the politician once more, with nearly apocalyptic results. Next time, we will continue our analysis of the events leading up to the Korean War, with a detour towards the Soviet angle and Joseph Stalin's apparently steely regime, which was an actual fact as brittle as his promises to allow legitimate democratic elections in Poland. Until then though, my name is Zach and you've been listening to episode 2 of the Korean War. Thanks for listening guys, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.